Sir, can you hear me okay? Great, oh, there we are, okay, good. All right, we'll get started here with the next panel. If everyone would like to have a seat. Okay, thank you. My name is Shane Harris. I'm a senior correspondent with the Daily Beast here in Washington and a fellow at the New America Foundation. Uh, I'm very pleased to be with you guys here uh, uh, for the panel this afternoon. We have a great discussion ahead. We're going to do a one-on-one -on -one conversation first, and then we're going to move to another panel, and we'll take questions and answers at the end of each of those two segments. Uh, but first, it's my pleasure to welcome Rich Weber, who is the Chief of Criminal Investigations for the Internal Revenue Service. Thank you for being here, Rich. Um, and the way I want to kick this off is it, it's a pretty basic question, but what exactly does the Chief of the Criminal Investigations for the IRS do? I think a lot of people would like to start by knowing that. So wake up around 7 o'clock. Uh, no, um, first of all, I wonder where everybody went. I, I, I peeked into the room like 20 minutes ago and was, it was totally full. And now we have, uh, You're getting the post-lunch drop-off. They're missing the best part. Their, their box lunches and, and not coming back. <coughs> but, but it's a pleasure to be here. First, let me, let me thank you. Let me thank Thompson uh, Reuters and Lancet Council for, for including me and inviting me. Uh, I love coming to these. Uh, events, and I love talking about IRSCI. So it's a great uh, opening question, which I'm going to try not to spend uh, two hours on, because I know there are some panelists that want to join us. Um, but it's not intuitive in, in terms of when you think of IRS to, to naturally think that there's a criminal investigation division. Um, just by a show of hands, because I'm always curious uh, by this, how many people have heard of criminal investigation as part of IRS? Okay. How many of you have been criminally investigated? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, how many people have filed their tax returns on time? No, you don't. So my, my, my folks in the back haven't, didn't raise, didn't raise their hands. Um, so, so, IRSCI investigates potential criminal violations of the Internal Revenue Code. We're the only law enforcement agency in all of government that has the authority, the jurisdiction to work tax crime cases. No other law enforcement agency has that jurisdiction. So when you look at uh, employment tax cases, when you look at offshore tax evasion, we've done a lot of that over the last few years. The Credit Suisse tax evasion case, $2.6 billion in the, the bank took it. These were like the Swiss plate. bank account right. famous cases. Um, yeah. that, that was just you know, one, uh, one case. Uh, I'll talk about my budget hopefully at some point because we're not even close to, to, to being at the $2.6 billion uh, range. You don't get to keep all the money you bring Keep in. nothing. Okay. <laughs> all goes to the Congress, but um, they take it all. Um, um, but we're the only game in town when it comes to tax violations, um, but we also get involved in a host of other financial crimes, money laundering, uh, corruption. Um, the FIFA investigation is a great example of, of the work we do in the corruption uh, area. It was actually uh, my agents who, who started that investigation through a tax, a very, very good tax investigation that then snowballed into a major corruption case. We're involved not just looking at the tax portion of the case, but looking at, at, at all of the relevant charges. Um, that case is still uh, ongoing, so there's little I can, I can add to, to that case, but it's a joint investigation with the FBI, great partnership with the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in New York. We get involved in drug trafficking, uh, money laundering, identity theft, uh, corruption, uh, I mentioned terrorist financing, mm -hmm. uh, and cyber is, is actually a new area uh, for us and something that we're dedicating uh, some resources yeah. Uh, although we don't have many resources to, right. to dedicate like the other agencies, we are focusing on that because of the nature of the problem on how it's impacting so many 
taxpayers. Yeah, and let's talk about the cyber piece for, for a bit, and as we kind of get into more of the specifics about these kinds of investigations, and you know, we'll talk about too what what people can be doing when they when they find that their information, personal information, has been stolen. But we're, we're so accustomed now to reading in the news about these big, big data breaches, whether it's Target, Home Depot, Anthem, OPM. When you, you know, wake up in the morning and you see news of a massive data breach like that, what do you and your investigators, what is the first thing you start asking? What are the immediate questions <clears throat> that come to mind so, when that much personal right. information is in the wind? So, I mean, the first thing I think of is, is um, do I have an account at that store or, right. or am I, am I going to uh, have my credit uh, impacted? Um, but the reality is there are so many uh, massive data breaches that are occurring uh, today, uh, more so in the last couple of years than, than ever before. Um, and, and most of the law enforcement agencies have some role in this. We're not the primary law enforcement agency when it comes to investigating data breaches. The way we would get involved and, and CI would get involved is when uh, specific uh, personal identifiable information we call PII, when that information uh, is at risk for criminals to use to attack the, the Treasury, uh, the, the, the big bank, uh, uh, when it could potentially impact taxpayers and when they file uh, their returns, um, that's really when we're going to get involved. So we're talking names, social security names, numbers. Names, uh, social security numbers. Social security numbers uh, by far is the, the, the biggest issue for us. Uh, names, uh, bank account information, anything that would be used to, to file your tax return, W-2 information. We're especially sensitive to, to breaches that occur at payroll services uh, or really any entity that has payroll type information. Mm. If it's a data breach at a, at a credit card um, um, place or a Home Depot or, or another type of a, of a store, uh, we may be peripherally involved and we'll kind of monitor to determine whether or not um, there is an impact on, on the taxpayer. So if it's a place that has a store of data that is more in the sort of the PII domain versus just account numbers. Correct. That's where you all see, that's where a greater risk that might bring you guys in. That's correct. Uh, my view though is, is every data breach has a potential to impact taxpayers, so we at least want to be kind of in the loop mm -hmm. uh, and involved. Um, and quite frankly, for the for the you know, private sector, what what my ask is is until we have legislation that's passed, is, is for the companies to notify you know law enforcement when they're attacked in some way. So in some way, so we can protect the, the citizens and the taxpayers. What were if things we I mean, if you if were, we don't know about yeah. it, then there's very little that we can do um, on the front end. If there were thing, if there were like let's say if they, if, they, if we could. You know, if you weren't reading about it, you know, because people like me are reporting it, but you sort of back the tape up in a month earlier or two weeks or how much, A, how much time would you want ideally in advance of notice and B, what would you all be able to do in that kind of early warning period that you can't do now? So it, it depends on, on the case and it depends on what was breached and what information is out there uh, and the timing of it. Um, far too often companies are so concerned about reputational risk that they hold off trying to deal with it themselves when that I think the reputational risk and the monetary risk is a lot greater uh, down the road versus kind of getting in law enforcement involved uh, earlier. Um, if we believe that taxpayers are at risk, there are things that we can do internally at the service by putting identifiers on, on people's accounts. So if a, if a return has been filed by a bad guy, that will trigger our system so we know that it's not the real return. We can't do that unless we have information uh, on the front end. And then of course, in, in, in really any criminal investigation, 
you know, similar to, to you know, organized crime or, or drug trafficking or money laundering or any type of case, the sooner that we're involved tracing the bad guy's activities, the quicker um, it is for us to try to get those leads and the information to track it down and follow the money. So give us a sense of how big of a scale the problem is of criminals taking these social security numbers, using them to file false tax returns, because I think that's, that's, that's really a big chunk of what we're talking about right in the cyber domain. What is the scale of that? I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking, and how has that grown in recent years? So, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to say specifically in terms of, of case numbers, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, so currently, we have about um, probably over 1,000 investigations that relate to identity theft that, that we're currently working. We've worked thousands prior to that. We probably have fewer cases open today than last year, uh, but I think that's because of how the problem has evolved, how identity theft has evolved. Um, I don't think it's indicative that we're, that we're spending less time on the problem because we have fewer cases. I think it, it, it's, it's more indicative of the, of the crime problem, how it's matured, and what we're seeing now. I'd love to talk about that a yeah, little yeah, bit. Please. The reality, though, is, and I'll talk just a little bit about this, is, is we do have fewer agents. So the reality is the more that we get cut uh, by, by, by folks on the Hill, the, the, the fewer resources we have to, to attack this very significant problem. I have 1,000 fewer agents today um, than I had in 1995. We lose about 150 to 180 agents per year due to retirement, and I'm hiring no one. Um, we have about 2,400 agents uh, in 25 field offices across the country, 2,400, to do all of the types of cases that I just mentioned, tax crimes, um, corruption, money laundering, I won't repeat it, but all of those cases that are within our mandate. Um, and a lot of those cases we didn't really have to focus on um, you know, a few years ago. Do you have a hard uh, time so, getting that money just because of something in the budgets are tightening or does Congress have a lack of affection for the IRS? Yeah, so that's a difficult question for me to, for me to uh, answer since yeah. I know that we're live and I don't know who's, uh, <laughs> who's watching enough that I don't trust the folks in this room. But uh, um, so I, I, I'm not political. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a career government employee. I've been in government for 24 years. Uh, I'm completely apolitical. Um, we're just not getting funded. Yeah. Why? I'm not really sure. When you look yeah. at the return on investment in terms of what we bring in dollar-wise, billions of dollars, and my budget for CI is, is, is about Six hundred uh, million. When you look at the types of cases, the FIFA case, the Silk Road case, the Liberty Reserve case, mm -hmm. other major international money laundering um, cases, um, I, I think it's easy in terms of, of the, the significance um, um, of what our agents are doing. Um, so it, it really is a little bit of, of uh, uh, kind of confusion as to why mm -hmm. we we would be uh, cut or not are not funded. Right. But it's a significant issue when you just look at the numbers. Right, um, so talk, and talk about, and you'd mentioned in the context of the numbers of the cases, the, the criminal aspect of this maturing and evolving over time. So talk about that and what, what you see there. So probably um, a, a, a few years ago, well, let, let me start with, with a stack. Is this a statistic? Is this maybe a decent way of, of framing it? So when I started three, um, three and a half years ago, and actually I think today, Today may be my my three and a half year anniversary. Happy so, anniversary! Not you know. So thank. I think you got me a mug. So. <laughs> yeah, right. We knew you were. Well, <laughs> I don't think I can keep it. But but um, but three and a half years ago, my agents were spending um, probably um, four to five percent of their time on identity theft. Um, a year or two before that, we were spending two percent of our time on identity theft type cases. Today, we're spending twenty. 
percent, and that's you know, a nationwide average. Um, and that's one thing that we can measure. So although our cases, we have fewer cases, and I think that's mainly because of the sophistication of the problem, which I can talk about, um, but we do track our direct investigative time, so we know that the agents are spending 20% on the average on this, on this problem. Uh, when I say identity theft, it really is related to cyber and the dark net, and, and I'll hopefully talk about that yeah. um, as well. Um, but it, it, it really is a, an interesting issue when you think about the, the time that we're spending on an area that, that, that we didn't have to years ago with, with hundreds and hundreds of fewer agents at the same staffing levels as the 1970s. When you think about that, that's, um, that's a little bit uh, uh, mind-boggling. Right, when there was a totally but, different kind of criminal element that maybe you're still dealing with, but not the one that we have now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so when you look at 20% of our time, um, that's on the nationwide average. In areas like Florida, Tampa, um, and uh, Miami, where we have two of our field offices, they're spending 50% of their time. Why so much there? Uh, the, I think it's the humidity. In Florida, um, um, I actually I'm not I'm not sure. I think all I, I think all crime um, um, starts in Florida. <laughs> for, for it's some, a great incubator for, of for, yeah, for some reason. <laughs> deceit um, and venality. Um, um, and then in the in the Midwest area, um, Charlotte, Dallas, mm -hmm. probably thirty or so percent of their time, which means that that those agents are not able to work the more sophisticated offshore tax evasion cases, employment tax cases that they really should be focusing their time on. So, so it's, it's a, it, it is a big issue for us. In terms of evolution, mm -hmm. uh, when I started, I think we were seeing a lot of the street level type of cases, folks that are trying to kind of hack into, into the IRS system, you know, people on the beach you know, with their laptop computers trying to break in, someone in their underwear in their basement, right. you know, just trying to see if they can file returns and, and what you know, what um, changes um, can they make on a return to see, you know, if they can kind of get into the system. Um, and the service, um, um, the civil side of the service, you know, we were not as, um, as strong um, back then as we are today with respect to the filters. So a lot of uh, dead people were getting mm. uh, refunds, not really dead people, but criminals pretending to be dead people. Um, although I think we probably sent them to dead people too. Um, <laughs> Prisoners uh, were getting a lot of uh, refunds, um, sending them to you know, multiple addresses. Um, and now there are a lot more filters in place to kind of protect um, um, taxpayers and the, and, the, and, the, and the treasury. We then started seeing a little bit of a, of a shift into more of these data breach, massive data breach cases. Um, and, and at the same time, I think a shift into some of the uh, international uh, mm. cases. Um, out of the thousand plus cases that we have today, um, I think a, a large percentage have some type of digital component, like a cyber type of a component, which I'll talk about in a, in a second, because that's a real significant issue. And I was watching a little bit of, 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 of uh, some of the prior panels talking uh, about uh, about the dark net, and, mm -hmm. and I do think it's, it is one of our biggest um, challenges. Somebody had said that up here, I'm not sure who it was, um, but it, but I definitely agree with that. Um, and then out of the 1,000-plus cases, I would say um, um, probably at least half of them have an international 
yeah. uh, component to them, and we weren't so seeing So criminals that. based overseas. Based overseas, or money somehow flowing overseas. Okay. Um, so, the, so the bad guy may be somewhere else, but then the money um, goes there. Um, and that has been a little bit of a shift. And then over the last year and a half, we've been seeing uh, a lot of activity uh, on the dark net. Uh, criminals utilizing the dark net um, to, to, to commit um, identity theft and a host of other crimes. Um, and then um, kind of use that um, um, you know, anonymous nature of, 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 the, of, of that space to conduct um, this particular crime. Again, a host of other crimes. This crime is, is, is really so attractive um, to criminals because of the, of the payoff at the end mm -hmm. of the day. And you, can, you can do a whole host of you know, different activities to, to make money, credit card fraud and, and, and other types of general fraud. But, but when, you, when you hit the, you know, the, the mothership, mm -hmm. um, the, the payoff is, is great. Um, so we know through current investigation, and, and, and we're, we're doing, a, I think, a lot more today than, than, than a year ago in, in um, you know, going on the dark net in an undercover uh, capacity to be able to kind of see what's going on. We know, I know as a seater today, that there are criminal networks that are waiting for the 2016 filing season, that they're stockpiling PII information ready to hit um, for the 2016 And they will start season. filing on like January 1? They, they will, will file as soon as they, they, they can <clears throat> file. Um, I once joked that, 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 that uh, this is n not accurate, but I think I once joked that, that, that you know, anybody that files, the, like the first day they can file, like, we should just pull their return. Because <laughs> who, but, who but, would be but, um, spending New right. Year's Day filing their uh, taxes, uh, right? Although now, <laughs> although now I'm one that, that files very early because I don't want to be one of, one, of the, one of the victims. And filing early, we were talking about this earlier, just a second, is helpful, right? And explain why, if you, as a strategy for avoiding this kind of becoming a victim, right. filing early can actually help you. So, so there are a number of ways to protect yourself. One is not to give out your social security number. That's easier said than done because it's already been given out, I'm sure, by, by a billion people. I remember uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, my aunt, um, I don't think I've, I've said this before, and it probably has no real relevance here, but, but my, except for social security numbers, my aunt, uh, I remember telling me uh, about not giving my social security number to a doctor in a doctor's office, and, and it made no sense to me, and I thought she was absolutely insane. Um, and then when you think back, a lot of our, at least our initial data breach cases involved insurance companies uh, and medical practices, um, and, the, and the amount of information that is now out there on the dark net and elsewhere um, because of those uh, medical um, doctor office breaches. It's just, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and, and I don't know if you've seen this, I went to a doctor not too long ago where they asked me for my social security number when I, when I checked in. So they're still asking for that, for that information, but protecting the social security number is, is, is a huge um, issue and protecting really all of your information, checking credit card uh, reports and, and to make sure there's no activity with respect to your accounts. Um, but then the ultimate way of protecting yourself is to file as soon as you can because if you beat the, the bad guy, um, then it's the bad guy that gets the notice that, that someone has filed a return um, and, and they won't accept that, that return. Um, so it really is um, true to, to file early and to file often. I mean, file early. So. <laughs> this may sound, this, this may sound like a, a naive question, but how does a criminal know when they just have a social security number and presumably it's anonymous to that degree 
that they're filing a return for somebody who is due a refund as opposed to who owes taxes. Sometimes they don't. I mean, that, that, and, and that's interesting because when, when this first started, it was really just kind of a hit or miss type of system where they have, they may have a social security number, they may have a name, uh, and they just, they just try a lot of different information to see what will, what will work. Um, I'm not permitted to go through kind of the various filters that are in place because I don't know if, I don't want to point to anybody, but if, you know, if someone's a criminal uh, or not. Uh, um, in this group, Tyler, but I mean possibly. In the, um, in the room, but, um, um, but earlier on, they were just kind of pinging the system. Um, and and you know, things are changing in terms of even how many times you can try to ping the system. Mm. Um, if, if you compare it to some other. Like the e-file system, you mean. Right. And yeah. if you compare it to you know, other you know, passwords or, or, or um, systems that you may um, try to get into, I, I think I tried to get into, into Amtrak uh, um, um, recently, and, and I got my password wrong. And the third time, I was locked out. I think I was locked out for like a week. I couldn't mm. get back in. And the old IRS system was you know, someone can kind of ping ping it a whole bunch of times until until they get in that um, that is changing that so that that's a that's a big big issue at all there's a lot that um, has been done on the civil side on the front end to protect you know the the treasury to protect taxpayers and I think that we're in a better place today than we were a few years ago and that and, and that's on the civil side although the work in criminal investigation um, is really for the most part focused on going after the bad guys but we also use all the information that that we that we learned from a particular investigation to, to then work with the folks on the civil side to develop these filters or to enhance the filters through our scheme you know, development centers to really try to figure out how do we better protect you know, the, the treasury um, and the taxpayers. Right. Um, but I do think we're, we're, we're better off today than we were even last year. The problem is with the, with the data breaches and, and with the dark net, if, if somebody steals all of your real information, your social security number, your you know all of all the information that you used last year, um, I'm not sure that there's any filter that the service can put into place that's going to completely protect that um, you know that type of a of a situation, um, which is why we need to do more on the authentication piece to make sure that the person filing is really that person right. and it's not just the information that they right. have and work is being done on, the, on, on that end. Um, so I think no matter what we do, not to make a pitch for, 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 for my office, but whatever we do, we're still going to be going after uh, bad guys uh, in, this, in this arena. Okay. Um, and I think we've made a lot of progress both on the civil and criminal side, but it's a, it's a problem that's, I think, fascinating when you look at how it has morphed from, from this kind of street level to this international dark net right. uh, type of crime. Right. And a few minutes left here. I want to let the audience have a chance to ask a couple of questions. So uh, please, if anybody has one, just raise your hand. Yes, sir. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, here comes the mic, yeah. Um, hi, Robert Shredder, International Investor. Uh, increasingly, uh, we're all <laughs> signing forms. I think it's the 4506T whether you are looking for a mortgage, even for job applications, a whole host of new things which will authorize the release of your tax returns. So while you and the IRS might be controlling things as carefully as you can, do you have any authority or are you concerned about the number of entities that are forcing people, for one reason or another, to share those tax returns and all the information with them, including the social security numbers, et cetera, et cetera. 
if they're not controlling it carefully right. enough. No, is I there anything that, you can do? So I, I, um, um, I think that's a, I think that's a great, uh, a great question, and I think it's a, it's an issue that that um, we need to to look at and be aware of. What the commissioner has done, IRS commissioner. John Cossigan, who, who has been absolutely fantastic over the last couple of years, recognizing that there is a problem with respect to you know, identity theft and, and trying to protect uh, taxpayers. Over the last several months, he's created um, this security summit, which is really a, a group of, of over 20 um, different um, individuals and companies, both from the government side, state government and federal government, and the private sector, you know, taxing authorities, uh, financial institutions, and, 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 and companies in the, in the space that you're talking about, to get them together um, on a regular basis to talk about these types of issues. I don't have answers today in terms of where they're going with respect to that particular question, but they've made some tremendous progress just in the last few months in terms of how do we you know, share information, you know, how do we get on the same page to when taxpayers are going to be filing returns, uh, when they go to, uh, you know, say to a company uh, and they have to give information, how do we protect them even before it hits uh, the service? How do we protect them in terms of the type of information that, that is out there to really try to limit what is, you know, what is exposed at the end of the day? Uh, but I think it's a fair question, something that, that we're continuing to look at. Thank you. Another question. Yes, ma'am, back here. question. Um, in the 80s, I was told not to talk to anyone on a flight, and they actually gave me an IRS employee handbook, and they said, wherever you go, just put it in front of you, and nobody will talk to you. And it worked. It worked great. And so I would use that when I just had to keep my mouth shut. So my question is, I, is when I, I, I hear a compliment coming there, right? It's a big I compliment. Feel, I kind of feel it. So now <laughs> you're a thousand agents short, and you've got all these people that are saying, you know, they're whistleblowing, they're saying you got to audit these people, you got to audit these people, and people are sometimes putting their neck on the line by saying, you know, these people are committing tax fraud, and those investigations are not happening. And I've had people contact me because somebody actually reported her husband that was money laundering, and she was going through an ugly divorce, and nobody could investigate because they didn't have the resources. So what are you doing to protect people that are reaching out because they see something illegal and they want it stopped? Thank so you. No, I, I appreciate that. So, so let me talk about a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, on the criminal side, we don't, we don't do audits, um, so that would be a, a civil function. Um, we do criminal uh, investigations, again, for, for tax crimes, money laundering, and a host of the other charges that I mentioned. The audit side is done by, by a separate uh, part of, uh, of, this, of the service. Uh, we do have a real problem with respect to, to staffing. We do have a real, real problem when it comes to um, our, our budget and the ability to stay uh, involved in a host of these, these crimes. Uh, I do suggest that you contact your, your congressman and your senator and you talk about these precise issues because I can't do today, my agents can't do today, uh, what we need to do on a regular basis uh, to fight crime the way I think we need to fight crime. When you go back and look at our nation's history, uh, we're an agency, I mentioned this right when we sat down, mm -hmm. we're going to be celebrating our 100th anniversary as a law enforcement agency in two and a half years. Uh, we're the ones that put Al Capone behind 
behind bars for tax evasion charges. They came to us because no other agency can solve that case. We put more bad guys in jail uh, um, because of the work of IRSCI agents over the last 98 years. We solved the baby Lindbergh kidnapping case. Most people don't know that. We're known as a silent service because over the years we haven't talked much about what we do. Um, but, and I mean no disrespect to any of the other law enforcement agencies. I worked with all of them when I was a prosecutor. I do so now. I have a lot of respect uh, for the other agencies. But nobody uh, can investigate a financial case better than an IRSCI agent. Yet we have a thousand fewer agents. Um, so this is the first time probably in the history of our organization that we're looking at our investigative priorities and trying to figure out what we can do and what we can't do. I wish that we could investigate every single tax fraud case. Uh, for some reason, um, uh, an entity doesn't want to give me the funding that I think I need to do our jobs. Uh, I worry about not just you know, investigating the cases that we need to investigate, but staying relevant as a law enforcement agency. I'm not sure how we do that when we're 1,000 agents uh, behind, 2,400 agents, agents for the entire country to do a host of these crimes is just, it, it's just not um, it's just not workable. You know, other agencies like the FBI, I have a lot of respect for them. They got 2,000 additional agents last year to do white collar cases. If you ask every one of the 94 US attorneys across the, the, the nation who they want to work their financial case, not just their tax cases. We're the only game in town when it comes to taxes. But who they want to work a financial crime case, they're going to say uh, IRSCI. Yet we can't get one additional resource, uh, resource to do these cases. Um, so uh, I don't know the particulars about the, the tax case, the money laundering case that, that you're mentioning. I'm happy to have, have, have somebody get information to look at it. And if it, if, and if it's a real uh, a case, I, would, I can't, I can't, I can't um, uh, promise that we would, that we would do it. Um, um, but I want folks to, to be able to give us information about crimes. Uh, I just can't guarantee that we're going we're gonna to do uh, all the cases that I think uh, we, should, we should be doing. I will say that even though we, we have fewer agents than, than we've ever had and, and, and we don't have enough, we're still out there. And we're still making some, I think, tremendous successes and tremendous progress. So for the criminals that may be listening or watching, not, not in the room, but, but, but somewhere, somewhere else in, 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 in cyberspace, um, I will say, and I will send a message, that we will find you. We have fewer agents. Um, and we have fewer resources, but we are the best, and we will find you at some point in time, because uh, our agents are the best at following the money um, and following the, the, the trail, whether it's the, the paper trail or the, or the di digital trail. Um, and, and we do have a lot of really great cases uh, going on in the present time. I just need more resources. So any help you can give me on that front. And I would, we need uh, more time, because we only have it. time for one more question. I'm sorry, briefly, question and answer, then we have to go to the next panel. You mentioned SSN, social security numbers, as being biggest vulnerability. I agree. Um, what are your thoughts about using technology to act in a preventative way? Sure. So for example, so auto-generating IDs for, for taxpayers so they don't have to use their SSNs to authenticate themselves, multi-factor authentication that's really robust, et cetera. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely think multifaceted authentication is, is, is where we need to be. I think resources is probably one of those issues is how much money we have um, um, in the service to be able to do some of the, these things. Um, the civil side is, is, is looking at those exact issues in terms of how to you know, kind of better you know, protect ourselves. On the criminal investigation uh, front, we are u utilizing, we, you're with who, just so I know? Oh, Thompson Reuter. 
Okay. Um, before I mention a, a, a particular data analytical company, I don't want to insult anybody. Um, but maybe I won't even mention it, so I won't get anybody in trouble. Um, but we are utilizing a, a data analytical uh, platform really for the first time, um, which is, I think, um, going to be a game changer in terms of how we um, how we look at these cases, not just identity theft and cyber, although it does play a, a significant role in those cases, but we're able to really um, to put a whole host of different data sets um, together by using this platform. And within, you know, within seconds, we're able to make connections um, and, and really um, figure out different schemes and, and find bad guys um, um, in ways in which we weren't able to do prior to this. Part of the problem, though, is, is with the, the cyber area and the dark net and the, the anonymous nature of it. Um, that's, I think, part of the tremendous, tremendous challenge that we have is being able to find these people that are hiding uh, you know, behind you know, a thousand different walls and, and being you know, halfway across you know, the world. To be able to track them, to be able to find them, it, it's going gonna, it, gonna to be resource intensive and it's going to take a little bit more time. Um, and one thing that we've noticed in some of these investigations is, is unlike some of the other like, traditional organized crime cases where you can, you can arrest somebody and flip them and, and get them to cooperate, uh, we're able to do that in, in our cyber-related type cases. But when they come in to cooperate, they don't necessarily know what the other parts of the investigation, what, what are the, I'm sorry, the other parts of the organization are doing, um, which is a little bit different than our traditional cases. They're completely walled off from the, from the main actors in, in Bulgaria, Nigeria, wherever, wherever they're operating from. And they don't necessarily know how all the pieces are working. So it's a puzzle that's taking a little bit longer in some of these cyber cases than, than before. Okay. But the data analytical tools uh, for the for the criminal area is is key, um, and and I think we're going to see a lot more success if if you have this next year. I would love to come back and actually talk about some of those cases where we utilize the tool um, and 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 kind of go through that a little Great. bit. Well, Rich Weber, good hunting in the dark web. Appreciate Thanks for it. being here. Pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. Everyone, give uh, Rich a round of applause, please. And uh, I'm going to invite our next four panelists to come up here and join me, and we're going to uh, continue the discussion. All right, great. And so again, we'll have a discussion here, and then we'll save plenty of time for your questions at the end, too. So um, let me start by uh, introducing uh, our excellent panel here. I'm going to start down here with Trent Taima, uh, who is the supervisory and a supervisory inspector at the FBI, uh, previously ran all of the cyber investigations here in the District of Columbia, uh, and did time at the White House as well, or did a stint at the White House, because you know, say did time at the White House. <laughs> Depends all a matter of perspective, right? Uh, then to my left here, Peter Lamontagne, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Novetta Solutions, a cybersecurity company. Uh, he's worked for other security companies in the industry and began his career as a Foreign Service Officer, right, and was posted at the U.S. Embassy uh, in Beijing from 93 to 96. Also a Mandarin linguist, which I'm sure doesn't at all come in handy in your job tracking cyber spies and criminals. Uh, then to my right, uh, we have Tina Jones, who is a senior advisor uh, in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, and advises and joins a number of different boards in the corporate space as well. Uh, she was president of United Healthcare Military and Veterans, which is part of United Healthcare Group. And she's also served as the comptroller for the Department of Defense, uh, and prior to that, 
uh, was the chief financial officer at the FBI. Welcome. Good to see you. And finally, uh, at the end of the panel here, Jason Brown, who is an assistant to the special agent in charge at the U.S. Secret Service Criminal Investigative Division. Uh, and Jason manages the cyber intelligence section, which targets, identifies, and apprehends uh, prolific and profitable cyber criminals harming the United States. And additionally, is responsible for overseeing the Secret Service's network of 38 domestic international electronic crimes task force. So uh, no small, por small portfolio there. Um, I, I want to start with a, a question uh, that is a good way of kind of getting into what it is that all of you exactly do and what you really worry about the most. So I want to ask you, uh, in your professional capacity, what it is that keeps you up at night? So Trent, do you want to start? Oh, okay, uh, so from my uh, cyber experience, I've done cyber investigations, forensics for the past 20 years for the FBI. I think the one question that keeps me awake at night, I think as it's, it's the, the playing catch up. It's the bolt on security to technology. Not that, you know, innovation's wonderful. We need to do innovation, but it's kind of the same mantra. We've been saying it for years. This isn't anything new, but trying to catch up the latest technology, but there's not a lot of thought to the security behind it and that new, technique, that new gizmo, whatever out there, ends up opening more holes which the data is getting out or people are getting in. That's the thing. It's just trying constantly as, as an investigator, trying to chase that down to find out, you know, that new hole that comes up every day that we're trying right. to track down. Right. So what did you miss while you were sound asleep? Something else has been developed, right? Exactly. Peter. I, I, I echo uh, what Trent said, the importance of trying to stay ahead. but. Uh, I probably wake up twice a night. Uh, the first time I wake up is as a CEO of a technology company and the importance of protecting our intellectual property and my fiduciary responsibility to our company to protect our intellectual property like all um, business executives. It's an important part of uh, our day and, and taking care of our intellectual property. And then as the second time I wake up as the CEO of a data analytics company with a significant cyber portfolio, uh, it is uh, staying ahead of the bad actors, uh, but also understanding how I can attract and retain the best talent. Uh, although we're a technology-focused company, the ability to attract and retain and develop uh, the best that defensive cyber has to offer is an intimidating challenge, and it's uh, critically important to our business that we, that we do that. And are you finding that more and more students are specializing this in school and we're churning out more people to fill those jobs, or no? I, I think so, but just like anything, um, it's the real specialists that are hard to find. So generalists are pretty easy to attract, especially in this era, and I was pleased to hear um, Rich talk about this. We're seeing the nexus of national security, cyber, and data analytics. So finding data scientists that understand network uh, traffic and can do some malware reverse engineering, um, those men and women don't grow on trees. So we're seeing folks emerge with the right types of skill sets and awareness, but that interdisciplinary expertise is still a very, very rare talent to find. Okay, all right. Tina, yes. So just kind of talking from a couple different perspectives as uh, a former CEO of um, a healthcare business, uh, and then my current responsibilities, which include uh, working on several uh, boards, including corporate board. Um, in my past life, uh, Rich talked about it a little bit earlier, uh, the healthcare space is very concerned about uh, uh, PII and PHI, which is healthcare information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and we can talk about that in a little bit, but obviously the, the trade-off um, uh, that you get in trying to deploy 
the infrastructure that's necessary? Do you, do you make it or do you buy it? Uh, I know um, our other panelists have got some perspective on that, but that was, uh, what's the risk involved um, and the frequency of incidents? And I think Rich hit on it. He was talking about his own doctor's experience. I, I, I think uh, most people know that many uh, physicians' offices still use fax machines. So uh, the, the uh, IT infrastructure of the healthcare industry overall is kind of a question. It was certainly something that was very much on my mind. Uh, and then kind of in my current uh, responsibilities uh, as a board member, um, how are boards um, taking the right steps, looking at the right information? Do they have the right focus to make sure that all the seams in a corporate organization are being accounted for? And uh, to the uh, uh, earlier comments made, if the professionals who do this every day for a living are concerned about, are, are we staying ahead of things? Do we have uh, the right, um, you know, are we gonna catch the next guy? You can imagine what boards are thinking. Uh, with the added responsibility of, of uh, meeting the kind of tyranny of the quarter. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting the right balance uh, in both spaces, I think is an important, important And do you think in, in the wake of some of these big high profile breaches that folks in the boardroom and executives running company now recognize that their cybersecurity is part of their responsibility and it's not just the techies yeah, <laughs> off at the end I, of yeah, the office. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and this is, you know, many executives have made the observation and you go in and you have your, your uh, security experts or your cyber executives give you the, okay, here's what could happen kind of fear factors sort of deal. Um, but really, I think what boards are looking for is what are the practical solutions that meet our, uh, essentially meet the requirements of any business and meet the business plan uh, are strategic investments in nature. And I think um, those, because of the larger and more, uh, 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 you know, the bigger breaches that we've had, I think they're getting more attention. I'm not sure we're still getting the right solution set, yeah. but I think it's, those are key areas for okay. me. And Jason, keeping, keeping you up at night. I think my perspective comes more from a law enforcement investigative angle. Mm -hmm. um, not knowing what I don't know. Hmm. Not knowing what the next step for our adversaries out there in the criminal space will be. You know, our background with the Secret Service, we're charged with protecting the nation's financial infrastructure and our retail infrastructure uh, through our payment systems and other forms of banking. And what we have constantly seen over a progress 10, 15, 20 years in cybercrime is we're going from a ground level, boots on the ground, hands on data type approach to complex financial crimes, and it moving into more of a globalized organization. Uh, as previous speaker said, you know, sometimes you bring a person in after you debrief them, they may know a couple of people they're working with and may know none of the people they know they're working with. One thing that we've always seen as being a plus for our investigations in the Secret Service is actually going after, after the, the flesh and the blood going after the person actually doing the crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always a good benefit in taking down a tool or a tactic, but you don't know what you don't know, and you don't want know what that next tactic may be loaded and ready to go, and the only way you know that is by going after the flesh and blood. So I guess what keeps me up more at night is who are those people we should be going after, where are they located, uh, how can we entice them to uh, actually talk to us if we're fortunate enough to locate them, and uh, really, taking them and their information and trying to not only get a better understanding for us in law enforcement, but then also being able to do that and share it with private industry so they can better protect their networks. Yeah. 
No, it occurs to me one thing I want to ask you in particular in reading your resume is you started your career at the Secret Service in the late 90s, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we're talking there sort of at the dawn of the commercial internet. And you've worked in the, the, the presidential protective detail, which is what we mostly think about sure. with the Secret Service. But you've kind of spent your career tracking these criminals and evolving with the agency at the same time that the threat has kind of evolved. I mean, talk about just, just a little bit briefly how it looked when you came in as a young Secret Service employee, not, not the troll now, but in 99 <laughs> versus now, because you're kind of capturing both ends of it here. Sure. Uh, whenever I started, I started in 99 in our New York field office. Uh, I did two weeks in checks investigations and immediately went to the Electronic Crimes Task Force. So I was very... Uh, and very, that was like a new thing, right? It I mean, was very new. Uh, the predominant uh, crimes that we were, we were tracking in e-crimes at that point had nothing to do really with computers. We were tracking cloned cell phones. Hmm. So individuals uh, taking your old analog cell phone, you used to be able to capture the EN-MIN pair, encode that to another cell phone, use that for whatever nefarious mode it may be. It may be a call cell center sitting in Brooklyn, like we'd always see going back to somewhere in Pakistan or something like that, and somebody just reselling minutes on that. But then you slowly saw the move uh, as technology moved. Once analog cell phones went away to digital cell phones we had, now the cloning of cell phones wasn't so prevalent. You started seeing even more use of skimmers and things of that nature to steal credit card information on a personal basis when we moved away from the old, um, old uh, resin pads with the uh, getting your actual numbers that way. But then we've also seen that evolve, uh, you know, evolve from a skimmer in a pocket to a skimmer actually put on a gas machine, onto ATM machines. We have some great investigations going on in LA and Miami, still dealing with skimmers because we're still dealing with magstripe data. Hopefully, we're going to be migrating away from that very soon because we're moving to chip and signature. Mm -hmm. Should we be moving to chip and pin instead of mag? I think that's a whole other panel discussion that we can have out there. But um, what we've seen is just the movement of sophistication as technology has gone along. And we've seen it go from the ground level, like we're talking now, into cyberspace. And we've seen it go in cyberspace, not only just a domestic issue like we saw with the Secret Services Operation Firewall in 2006, the dark market investigation at FBI with NCFTA a couple years later, all that migrate from the English-speaking side of the house to the Russian-speaking side of the house. So it's, it has just slowly evolved to become better, more reactive, more uh, ability to gain information and to avoid law enforcement. Right, right. Yeah, one of the things that occurs to me, and we talked a little bit this, about this, some of us, before we came up, <clears throat> is that when we talk about you know, data breaches or intrusions, and, but which has been sort of like the, the overriding kind of theme of these discussions, we think about them as these single events, like one day there was not a breach and then there was. One day the data was safe and now it's out in the open. But really it's a whole continuum and each one of you sort of has a different point at which you touch <laughs> uh, that investigation or that event. So I wonder if we could kind of just talk a bit about, you know, the, the different phases of this and like how that implicates, you know, the corporate side, the law enforcement, the investigative side. I mean, it strikes me that from the perspective of somebody who sits on boards, right, uh, perhaps, you know, it starts with you or maybe it starts when the FBI comes and knocks on your door and says, you know, we've noticed something that maybe you haven't seen. Well, what, why don't you two kind of start talking about like, you know, what, when that first occurs and, and also, you know, what is the sort of the mode that you go into when you learn that you have, have got a rage? I don't know which one of you wants to take it first, but uh, whatever you like. I, 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 imagine the scenario of you guys find, that they, which happens a lot, right? You find a breach that a company doesn't know about. So, yeah, we're, 
so over the years of intrusion breaches, as going out, especially with the big data breaches we're seeing, is the way the FBI is coming across this, the way the Secret Service is coming across these nowadays, is not necessarily from the victim company coming to us. A lot of times we may have uh, an attorney law firm on K Street maybe come to us a hypothetical, they have a client, but that's, that's a lot more rare. What it is is we've got another ongoing investigation, we have sources out there, we're building it, and we see an intrusion or an attack against uh, an organization, a company. And you know, based on the investigation, we see large sets of data going over the wire, and then we're trying to trace back. Or the other scenario is, I find a large set of data sitting out there that somebody, it's like stolen goods. They're hiding the stolen goods somewhere on the net. We find it and we start pulling back the packets and the data and we realize, oh, this, this belongs to your company. And then we have to reach out and do the uncomfortable phone call. I think we have something that may be yours. And then trying to start that dialogue with trying to, and there's, there's a whole like, um, you know, the, the phases of death dealing with that is where you do, you contact the company they talk to you for a few minutes, they stop, they want to talk to their attorneys, which is great. And then, you know, there's a mourning period, and then they come <laughs> back and want to talk to us again. And we get that, because there's a whole bunch of, you know, whether or not you've got regulators over you or investors, you're publicly traded, there's a lot of decisions a company has to go through with dealing with this. We want to deal with the right people, and hopefully there's a plan in place when it happens, because you know, as Director Comey says, there's only two different companies in the world, those that have been hacked and those that are about to be hacked. It's just that's where we, that's the, that's the reality we live in. So I would contact a company, tell them about it. We then wanted to sit down probably with their, you know, their chief financial officer, their chief uh, legal officer, CEO, try and track it down, see what logs are there. Uh, a lot of the time, and, I, and Jason and I have probably been on the same place going in is usually the company wants to fire their IT guy or the chief security <laughs> officer, the chief from basic because they didn't do, they didn't protect it. Really, they've probably been doing everything right. It's just the life cycle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is literally, they may have been in for months. So right. the breach happened through a spearfish or some other vector. They're in there, they're collecting data. They want to keep access, so they're not going to tip it. Then they'll slowly start exfilling it. And then they'll do, then the data's gone, and then it's trying to trying to plug the holes and, and solve who did what, so, where's the data. Okay, so Tina, Trent knocks so, yeah. on your door, says you've got a breach, you didn't know, so what's the first thing that you guys do then? Well, I, I think probably more practically, uh, at least in my experience, what would have happened is, um, and a lot of times this will happen with you know employees, they'll just make a mistake, uh, or there'll be some, um, some protocol that's not uh, uh, followed, and uh, internal, either internal audit or managers will come and notify management and at that point uh, you know as quickly as you can you notify whoever your regulator is um, so uh, in the example of uh, uh, PHI or PII there are protocols that have to be uh, followed within a, in a particular time just like under HIPAA and healthcare yes, privacy exactly. yeah okay so I mean I think and and in the healthcare space uh, they're very attuned to that I mean that is a big deal and um, and everybody by the way all employees understand it's a big deal and I think uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, tens of hours of um, training um, at frequent intervals of employees for this very purpose. But, I mean, I think the point also about, okay, who's accountable? This is a very important question, and I think it's one that boards are asking, too, which is, uh, do you have a, a chief uh, risk officer? Do you have a chief um, security officer? What is that, the role of that individual, if you have one, versus the CIO, and to, to Trent's point, 
you know, the CIO may be doing exactly, may be very up to speed, very current with the technology, maybe, uh, uh, you know, you're following best practices in the industry, but there are just certain things you're not going to be able to cover. But I mean, I think in any case, uh, it, it certainly is in the mind of most corporate suites uh, that, you know, notifying the appropriate government uh, entity or regulator or whomever as quickly as possible to get on top of it is in everybody's, it's everybody's obligation and best, uh, in their best interest to do so. So whether or not it's the FBI or the Secret Service or, or CID, which is, you know, when you have an investigation, we're so busy that when we come up and conduct it, we're not going to read everybody's email. So there's this natural hesitance to, oh, I don't want the FBI, I don't want the Secret Service coming in to, you know, look at my network. I'm not going to read your mail on your network. I'm going to try and determine what was stolen, where it came from, find out and trace it back. I'm also not going to go out and hold a press conference. You know, we're, we're going to try and keep it low key so we can work the case and work it back. The real thing that's going to happen is the dialogue between the investigative agency and the victim to try and help them. You know, stop the pain first and then trace down, like Jason said, who, the heartbeat. Who's, who's responsible for it? Because then you can actually go after it. You're not chasing the hot points. You're, you're chasing the person at the keyboard. And that's... So then they way. often call a company like you, right? Yeah. right? I think, um, <laughs> Come help us to make sure this doesn't happen again. I think, or during the actual uh, forensics of the mm -hmm. breach and, and studying that, I, I would just uh, also echo a couple of points about the continuum yep. and that this is a process. Uh, first of all, uh, as Trent pointed out, the vast majority, based on many studies, including last year's Verizon report, um, most of the time, companies that have been breached have been breached it's measured in months, not in days. So the notion of as, as much as it makes for an interesting television episode when someone's you know, hacking in and a red light goes off and they solve it, usually that's not the way it works. Uh, and that's why when we hear about APT, advanced persistent threat, and so many of these words seem to have become meaningless because they're thrown around so much, that P is critically important to appreciate persistence. Mm -hmm. It's unlike a, a bank robbery where someone presumably breaks into a bank or robs a bank once, in, out, done. What you're talking about with persistence is regular, continuing, increasingly privileged access to your network where they move horizontally across that. And so it is uh, quite common for the Bureau or the Secret Service to knock on the door. And what we're finding is that boards, uh, as well as executives, are increasingly maybe unfortunately, but I think it's a good thing, aware of this phenomenon. And many say, oh, this is the third time, uh, the third company I've been at what we've been uh, discussed. And now it's not so much, oh, we don't want to share the information or we're concerned they still contact legal counsel and do that, but rather the notion is, what can you do to help us, right? How, and unfortunately, as the resource that, resource that Rich talked about, neither the Bureau nor the Secret Service, they can help investigate and do as much, but they can't come in and then do all the forensics on your network, help you patch their systems. They can say, this is what we've seen. And it's companies like ours that will come in and try to help them out. Um, and so it is an area of growth for everyone in the industry. Uh, but it's, um, it's really challenging. And the last point I'll make on the persistent side, you know, high profile, high volume breaches of credit card information or PII are the ones that get all the press. Honestly, the most nefarious I think persistent hacks that are going on and ongoing are those that will never come to light because there aren't thousands of credit cards that end up on the dark net or 
used to be Carter Planet or whatever it was, right? Because really what they're doing is they're getting in and they're extracting information slowly and they prize their value of staying on that target's network to the point where you'll see actual bad actors repairing systems, doing maintenance on the systems to maintain their presence. Lest the systems go down, we lose our presence. So you have a very uh, sophisticated embedded IT shop inside your network. And while that's- You're thanking them. Yeah, you're, it's, it's, yeah. And you're thanking them. You're paying them with data. I mean, come exactly. On. So um, I think that type of sophistication is really uh, the biggest challenge uh, for all of us who are trying to protect networks. This makes me a question too, and I mean, maybe we've kind of gotten at the answer here. The, the reason it takes so long for these breaches to be discovered, is it more a statement about the skill and the tenacity and persistence of the intruder, or is it more a commentary on the woeful nature of defenses that most organizations are deploying? I would say both. Yeah. Uh, which clear. one more than the other? <laughs> well, it depends on what type of breach you're talking about. Uh, as we were just discussing, I think one of the more prevalent problems we've especially had over about the last 14 to 18 months is a definite move by a lot of our adversaries targeting portions of the financial payment system versus going after the big target. And, still, and lack of a better term, target, going after a, a large box store like that. Instead, they're looking at the actual way that our payment system works. Mm -hmm. So they're going after the credit card <clears throat> processor. They're looking at how the point of sale systems process that information and push it to the banks. If they can go into an area that's a, a great example, last summer, the back off malware when it was identified up in, up in the Buffalo, New York area. That was a small mom and pop organization that they found that piece of malware on. Secret Service working through with NKIC, we got the advisory out, we got the malware analysis report out. The feedback that we got back from that was we never knew we had this problem because nobody was really looking at the time at remote uh, access to systems as a problem on point of sale systems. And that's an issue where the the company that is running that, that small liquor store that's running the point of sales terminal, they're not intentionally doing anything malicious, but they've hired a third party contractor that no fault of their own. They may be, again, a small mom and pop organization. They administer about 40 stores and to make it easy on them running it out of their budget, they're using default passwords or they're using the same password on every point of sales network they administer. So that's a little sloppy, but we're also seeing that being one vector of it, but also the increased sophistication of the actors. Because yes, once we found back off, we slowed it down for a couple of months with the assistance of our partners in, in financial services. What's next thing came out? Front POS came out, Poseidon came out. The next flavor of that type of malware, that's where the sophistication comes in. Whenever they start to see it slow down, they will morph that malware mm -hmm. as well. And, and I would just add, in addition to the sophistication <coughs> and sometimes sloppy defense, um, let's not forget part of the title for today's event, which is big data. So the volume mm -hmm. of network traffic, the volume that you see, and even on a medium-sized enterprise today, is significant. So when you think about, think about if you're, you know, whether it's Secret Service or a security guard at, uh, you know, at FedEx Field, and if you're charged with sitting in the center of FedEx Field and looking out at, you know, 50,000, 60,000 people, how easy is it going to be to pick someone out who's just sitting in their seat or standing in their seat? The only time you have a shot at identifying the person you're looking for 
uh, is when they have lateral movement or they're doing something anomalous, walking against traffic, opening up an exit door that they wouldn't normally open. And to find that one individual in 50,000, doing it at that moment that you're looking and finding it is extremely difficult. So it's, it's not a filter, right? You have a door that's locked or open, but if someone has credentials then, so the volume challenge is not insignificant, which is why an analytics approach for anyone uh, just trying to recognize and accommodate the volume is not insignificant. And although I'm a technology company executive, there is no silver bullet. Mm -hmm. Any technology company is trying to sell software or do that, it is not just a technology problem. It's not our technology, it's not someone else's. It is a comprehensive program that a, a team has to invest their time and their talent in solving. It seems like we get into it, you're bringing up a question that makes me think of the victim blaming that goes on with a lot of these breaches, right? And we sort of think that, you know, how could you be so stupid as to let them in? But it sounds like what you're describing here is a situation in which certainly individuals and even sophisticated organizations that are very good at whatever their business is, which is probably not security, are really sort of outmatched in many cases by highly, highly sophisticated adversaries. So my question, and everybody kind of chime in on this, where are the really good bad guys coming from? Like, where is the talent? And what is the motivation, ultimately, for these, these really sophisticated kinds of attacks and breaches that we're seeing? So I think, you know, from a law enforcement or criminal perspective, follow the money. It's what is old is new again. Is like, if I can make a lot of money doing this, I'm going to go back and back. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's that defensive game where we'll arrest that one group, we'll stop it. But if I can make a lot of money worldwide, so it's not just a domestic problem, it's like you know, Eastern Europeans can hack into systems here in the United States, steal a lot of money. So you follow that money and there's a lot of investment. We, you know, in fact, I can think of a case back in the uh, mid-90s I was working where you know, basically it was a very entrepreneurial Eastern European hacker. He's about 21 <coughs> in a, in a, in a, at a part of the Eastern Europe where you know, poor economy. But he started making a lot of money just doing carding and stuff like that, like Carter Pound Planet, mm -hmm. Pound CC, and all that stuff. And the local organized crime group figured out, hey, this guy's making a lot of money. How's he doing it? And then pretty soon, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And then we saw they started doing investing. They started getting, at the time, T1 lines, T3 lines, going into basically you know, old Soviet block buildings over there, and then satellite shots. And it's all infrastructure so they can pull off the caper. So to answer your question on that, it's just the, the higher sophistication will go is the more money I can pull off. And then we've seen some uh, big ATM ripoffs over the last couple of years where worldwide a lot of money was taken. So, I mean, that's, that's a big motivator. And, and I think you also have to look, you know, not really ironically, but interestingly at STEM programs. Look at nations that have really good science, technology, engineering, and math programs. Um, these, Soviet Union, former Soviet Union was one of them. Yeah, there's sure. one. Um, China, the United States, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I'll include ourselves in there, right? We have. I'd like. I wish we were at a stronger STEM program. I could hire more great, brilliant, you know, uh, data scientists. Um, and so that, and then you know, there are places around the globe that have that. And then I think, in addition to the um, financial motivator, where there are organized and established crime networks, and then there's the national security espionage side, right? Where you have the um, the co-occurrence of strong. Uh, STEM programs with a national security interest and a desire to have an offensive counterintelligence program or an active yeah. espionage program. And we generally assume, and, and people in my business too kind of lump them in categories of China equals mostly industrial esp economic espionage, Russia equals mostly organized cybercrime. Are those still generally the two broad categorizations or are we just seeing 
a blending and emerging, and now everyone's sort of in, into all of it. I think you can see a blending and emerging of everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, us in the Secret Service, I wear a Title 18 hat only. I'm a criminal guy. Trent, he can switch his hats as will pretty well between 18 and 50. But um, from what we're seeing, it is truly a global crime. It is a globalized crime. Now, I do concede that the most serious actors we see out there targeting our financial services industry and the financial infrastructure of the United States are definitely from Eastern European, former Russian state, Russian-speaking individuals that are targeting us specifically. And they're doing it for two reasons. One, a lot of the countries in that area, if they're not hacking their own country's infrastructure, it's not necessarily a crime. Right. So whenever they're attacking the U.S., they're doing the good deed for their area. But more than anything, like Trent said, these are financially uh, motivated actors. They have, uh, their whole reason is they're greedy. They need the money. They need to do what they want to do with it. But more importantly, we often get the question is, are we afraid that the activity by these actors is going to actually collapse our financial system? My firm belief is absolutely not. Why would you crush the sole system that you are looking to exploit it's and like make your It's like repairing the network that yeah. you're ripping off, yeah. So, uh, yes, it's a truly global crime. We're yeah. seeing it all over the place, but the most serious actors in the area that the Secret Service concentrates with financial institutions and retail, we are seeing out of the Eastern European Russian area. And, Tina, and people always ask Tina a question on the healthcare aspect too, because this has been in the news and, and everybody here is gonna to touch the healthcare system at some point. The people that are taking that information, where are they coming from and what are they doing with it? What's their primary motive? Well, I mean, I would defer to my colleagues in the law enforcement uh, yeah, As to where, it's, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, spent, as I spent some time at the Bureau, but, uh, but I think in terms of the sources of that. But I do think uh, as, a, as, as a practical day-to-day -day matter, the kinds of things that uh, we were concerned about uh, were the um, losses of personal information. Mm -hmm. and. Um, so, so, I mean, I think, uh, and I think it's also important kind of to recognize, I mean, you had one of the large healthcare companies that had a big uh, problem earlier uh, Anthem, last yeah. year, Anthem. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I think the recognition of executives as to the real damage that's being done by those types of occurrences, uh, I think that is something that is evolving. Mm -hmm. And their willingness to spend in that arena to um, to help prevent those kinds of losses, I think is a is a is still an open question. I saw one estimate recently by 2020, the healthcare spend for uh, this type of security would be about 10 billion. I don't know, you know, that's one estimate. Uh, but when you think about a three trillion dollar yeah. industry, I mean, that's uh, I think there's a lot more that can be done. In this and are they space. ultimately taking it in using the PII the same way they would in any other kind of fraud, or is there is there something special about healthcare personal health information that they want to get and use and exploit? Well, again, I'd kind of defer to my law enforcement colleagues here, but but I mean, I think the fact of the matter is it's so rich. Uh, there's just the so much of information, data in there. You get all kinds of information on an individual. Uh, the, um, the social security information, obviously, and other types of, and, and I think I mentioned this before too. That the way, the antiquated way that that uh, physicians' offices and other uh, offices are are working, they're not spending the kind of money on infra in IT infrastructure, still using fax machines. So there's a lot of uh, potential ways to to exploit the um, the lack of. Um, uh, Tight infrastructure. Yeah. Trent, something says about the healthcare aspect. Yeah. yeah so for the health, so the question on why would you steal healthcare data? 
So the FBI, we investigate healthcare fraud. So I think first reason we've hit it's it's you know the obvious is is um, identity fraud, identity theft. You try and leverage that. Then you start, you know, and I'll make you all digital detectives right now. You kind of start working your way down. Why else we do it? The next thing I we put in the, the I guess, the bucket of healthcare fraud. So if there's a way I can uh, take advantage of the Medicare system. The same thing with the the uh, IRS returns, tax returns, that fraud, same type of thing. So if I can leverage this, or if this gives me a more robust way of doing identity theft, but I also may be able to file um, healthcare payments and start getting reimbursed by the healthcare system, the government, without it necessarily getting flagged, because it looks, you know, it's, it's the big data. The question is, you know, you're always trying to find the, the needle in a haystack, but the problem is, what if it's a needle in a stack of needles, where it, it looks the same and it's looking right? How do you, you pick out that anomaly? Then you work down is, why was this particular group taken? What's significant about this data? Why that healthcare? And then you get into, um, I go in intellectual property issues where it's like competitive advantages, you know, really get into companies or systems that are trying to get the edge on somebody else. And then you just go down to, is there something more nefarious? Why did you take all of that data? Who's in that data pool and then how can I use it? You know, generally if it's a financial motivation, it's criminal. If there's no financial motivation, it's not intellectual property theft, it's not, you know, I'm not going to get an advantage. Then you're moving down the scale to some other reason. Who would benefit for that? Is it a foreign intelligence service, state sponsor, uh, terrorist group? Why, why do you need this data? Because technically, you know, why would you want to see somebody's medical records? Why do you care? So, I mean, this sounds like I'm mean, putting on my Hollywood hat here for a second. Yeah. I mean, it, you've got a set of data, and somewhere you see in it that it's, you know, it's, it's like a, a plot from Homeland, like the vice president's information is in there, and you find out this strange heart arrhythmia that he right. has. And I mean, is that, I mean, is that a realistic threat? You have this data and you're sitting here, you're worried that somebody might actually take this and use it to target an individual. I, I think it's more, it's like as you're grabbing, the, well, the, you back it up, that it could. I mean, you go there, but it's not very realistic. I think it's more realistic that there's so much data out there that it's much easier to grab all the data and then kind of go through it and then take what you can and sell it off. You know, basically I just went out and I pulled my, my uh, moving truck upside your, outside your house, loaded all your furniture in it, took off, and then I'm selling what you have, and then whatever I don't need, I just dump on the net. That's probably more realistic, but I mean, it's a great plot line for, for yeah, Homeland, but right. it, it's more that, because you get more and more data where either, I'm, what am I gonna get, what am I gonna do with it? How am I gonna make money? How am I gonna leverage this information? Otherwise, why, why do it? Well, and to that end, too, I would say, obviously, for the, the, you know, the key issue on healthcare fraud, this is something that uh, the healthcare industry works pretty closely and uh, with the government uh, to make sure they have the appropriate uh, analytics to try to identify yeah. that. It's, again, in everybody's best interest that that be done. One of the things I've been really interested in is kind of continuing on this thread for a minute with the OPM breach, which of course has been, you know, is massive in scale and has attracted so much attention. And probably a lot of people in this room have received letters from OPM uh, about your personnel records no longer being stored and exclusively there. Um, <laughs> I, I talk to people in the industry whose you know, job is to go out on the dark web and watch for when personal information is ending up for sale and when it's ending up in these, in, in these markets. And what they tell me is that's a good indication that, okay, the motivation for the breach was fraud. It was to pull the stick out, to sell the social security numbers, that kind of thing. I'm not hearing anything about the OPM data showing up in the dark web. Does that then mean, I mean, do you all, as we're investigating these kinds of cases, look at something, and if you don't want to talk OPM specifically, because I know it's ongoing, that's all right, or though I'd love if you would. Um, but 
when we don't see that information ending up in the dark web and being sold, is that getting at more of what we think, you know, what Trent was talking about of these nefarious purposes, or that's when we can tell it's, it's gonna be used for something else if we're not seeing it show up in those marketplaces? I can speak from a financial side. I'll stay away from the OPM breach because I completely defer to Trent and the FBI with OPM. But if you're talking about financially stolen data that may not get out there right away, mainly it's because you've got to think of the volume of data that is currently out there for sale. And the criminals have a motivation to get relevant data out there as quickly as possible. So whatever they stole last week may not be the most relevant data because what they stole six months ago but has not been identified as fraud, they need to get rid of this before mm. it's identified. Mm. So you've you got to keep your brand. What is your reputation online when you're selling stolen financial data? The relevance and the validity of your data is your namesake. And if your data isn't good, if it isn't 100% valid when it's out there, then you're going to lose your stock. That's why we see a lot of the, uh, a lot of the automated sites now that are out there selling stolen financial data. You can actually cater exactly what you want to buy. You can buy cards only from Phoenix, Arizona. Why do you want to buy cards only from Phoenix, Arizona? Well, if I'm doing card present fraud and I'd use data from Phoenix, Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, it's going to take longer for the bank to identify that fraud than it is if I'm using Phoenix, Arizona data in Detroit, Michigan. So it's a relevance when it comes to the financial side of the house and staying current and staying valid within the community. So it sounds like, I mean, these... Criminal organizations have the same market reputations to worry about about their service as you know yeah, Thomson Reuters. Absolutely, <laughs> there is truly honor amongst thieves right, right now. Right, right. Complete that's, that's honor a, amongst. And that's thieves. a great point. I mean, there must there's a self policing kind of mechanism absolutely. in the market, right? That if you're selling off bad data yeah. or junk yeah. data or oh, or selling it to more than one person when you promise it exclusively, you're gonna you're gonna suffer for that. And there is. Uh, you know, and it's in addition to how fresh the data is, it's how complete it is. And so you do see the commoditization pricing-wise of certain types of credit cards versus other types of credit cards and, and, and uh, criminal vendors that are selling identities or they're, you know, obviously a more complete record is more valuable than, you know, a single uh, social security number. Going back to your uh, question on OPM and not to talk specifically about OPM, but I think there is, um, there is an element of if the data doesn't show up uh, on the dark web for sale from a commercial perspective, it's at least an indicator that, um, that someone who's using it does not want to share that and there may be mm -hmm. another level. Or it was done for a particular customer that was a one-off transaction that's not mm -hmm. being you know, mass produced. No different from uh, a sophisticated uh, you know, or, and criminal art collector mm -hmm. who requests, I want that painting, and he or she hangs it in her home, and no one ever sees it. It never yeah. gets advertised on the dark web. Hey, buy this Monet. Right. Um, so I think that's there. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's guiding toward espionage or not, mm -hmm. but it probably means it's more specialized in its purpose. Um, and I think, again, there's an economy uh, in this type of data. Right. Well, you know, and that's actually right, because the, the reality is, is it, Whoever wanted that data, it may be that one-off, and it may be for intellectual property reasons. It may be one competitor wanting to know what the position of the other company is, and that's gonna, they're going to be able to undercut them or purchase something that puts them in a better position. It may never make it to the dark web because it was specifically to give them that advantage right. for whatever reason worldwide. And so globally, if you, if you look at economic espionage, or more like uh, industrial espionage, Difference is industrial espionage is done by a company, economic espionage is done by a country, 
it's a Title 18 statute difference. But the, the difference is, is if, if I'm a large rare earth metal company somewhere around the world and I want to know what the position of my competitors are somewhere else, you know, one country, not country against country, just company against company, that may be something you want to know about. Or, you know, you're trying to invest, you're trying to break into Europe and you're trying to see what your competitors are doing. So there's a lot of that going on, company versus company. So you won't see it necessarily coming out where it's, it's being sold in the Carter forums. It's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the painting. Yeah. It's hard to fence the data because who's going to buy the data? It's more you need to know what that advantage is so you can, you can bid it. My favorite recent story of this is, in fact, your colleagues at the Bureau about a month ago did a big on-the-record briefing about uh, uh, economic espionage, industrial espionage. And when we all right. sat down, every reporter had a packet of Oreo cookies sitting in front of them. And we weren't exactly sure what this was about. But they told a story of, and this is where information didn't get to the dark web, but it was, it was, a, it was a company in China that wanted to buy the formula for titanium dioxide, which is the thing that makes the filling in the Oreo cookie so white and permanently <laughs> white. And when, they quit, when, they, when Dow Chemical wouldn't sell it to them, they stole it. And so these very like, you know, particular kind of one-off sort of for hire uh, competitive uh, things are the same skills and techniques that you'd be using to get tons mm -hmm. of data and put on a Carter forum. Um, let me bring it just down to a really specific kind of question, and this I want to get kind of at some you know solutions in in, in this discussion too. So um, um, yesterday, actually, there's a very practical example that I want to spring off of for this question. Uh, um, WikiLeaks posted emails that were hacked from the CIA director, uh, and uh, I, what was interesting to me about this was there wasn't really anything about covert operations or anything like that. What they did was they posted John Brennan's uh, SF-86 form. So the, the information that he puts out about all of his associates, where he's lived, et cetera. And what the, ended up happening is the social security number and dates of birth of his wife, his children, many of his relatives are now online and out there for anyone to see on WikiLeaks' website. So, when something like this happens in, in, in an individual, whether it's somebody who's getting doxxed or it's you find out that your personal information has been breached, what do you actually, should you actually do at that moment? Like when you find out that your social security number has been on the web, to take the extreme example, what is the first thing you should actually be doing rather than you know, waiting for the form letter that comes in the mail that says we'd like to offer you nine months of credit card protection or whatever it is? Freeze your credit. Yep. Freeze your credit? Freeze Contact your credit. all three yep. major bureaus, freeze your credit. Honestly, what do you mean by freeze your credit? You can put a hold on your credit with all three major bureaus so nobody can do any inquiries. They can't okay. pull out any new credit cards. They can't get a new mortgage in your name. Honestly, unless you have a burning need to maintain open credit, close it down today. Why do you need it open at all times? Think of back in the last six months how many times you've applied for a new credit card that you did not plan to apply for. Or how long did you apply for a refinance of a mortgage or bought a new house or a new car that you didn't plan for a couple of days, weeks ahead of time? It doesn't take you that long to turn your credit back on. So why have it open to begin and with? There's no deleterious effects to doing that and turning it no. on or off. No. Okay. And then also I would say from a pre preventative perspective, if you do maintain uh, whatever level of credit, whether it's credit cards, um, take advantage, you may as well take advantage of cyber and apps uh, to your own advantage and get the instant notifications anytime your credit card or your ATM is used. That, that little that, uh, notice that flashes up in your screen, your American Express, your Visa, your MasterCard is, is really helpful if it's just part of your routine. Goodness gracious, we all check our texts plenty of times. Take advantage of that and look at what's being done on your credit card or credit cards. Personal advice, anyone else? Sounds pretty good. 
I've gotten a few of those letters that say we've given you six, X number of months right. for uh, free credit reporting. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually, that's very helpful information. That's yeah, I've never actually heard that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, that I think anybody in law enforcement tries to regularly do. Some of us are more lax to doing it than others, and especially if you're a public figure. Uh, you know, you brought up Mr. Brennan's situation. Hopefully that's already been put in place for him. I can't speak to that, but uh, you know, any public figure like that, you hope that that has already been done for them as well. Are there criminal networks that just specialize in targeting celebrities and high profile people just for the fun of it or because they know they might have money or, or something like that? I think you're hitting the fun of it more than anything. Yeah. There are groups that, you know, activists or whatever they're targeting or they take issue or on bridge with something and said and they'll start going after it. It may be just sensationalism like hacking a celebrity's phone mm -hmm. and putting those texts up. There, there are groups out there that do that. One of the things that's interesting in Brennan's case that hasn't been brought out, and I'd love to get your all's take on this because it gets at solutions again. The, the hacker who claims to have compromised his AOL account uh, uh, says, he gave an interview in which he says that the way he did it was by calling up Verizon, posing as a Verizon employee, getting information and having information that was able to let him reset the passwords that Brennan was using. Now that seems to me that, you know, you may be the CIA director and presume that you have lots of physical security around you, but at the end of the day, he's still dependent upon this company not doing something stupid uh, and, and giving over this information to a person who's not supposed to have it. So, and it occurs to me that also this, this m method of calling up the company, posing as someone, and getting the information to reset the password on the accounts, we've seen this in other cases. I think we saw it with the uh, celebrities whose photographs got hacked. There was a, a writer for Wired Magazine who wrote a long piece about this. Is there some fundamentally like weak piece in the chain right there that involves, that we can fix? I mean, can we just address that and will we solve a lot of these problems? I'll just say that, you know, it's uh, one, social engineering, which is the way this worked out, it has a long history in cyber and gaining access, physical access or remote access. And those of you who have never had a chance to attend, um, you know, DEF CON should do so and sit in on uh, social engineering village where you see live white hat social engineering sessions where people, you'd be amazed at how easy it is to socially engineer or hack into someone's system where they're just trying to do the right thing. However, in my recent experience with password resets, I'm encouraged by the number of times that you cannot get anywhere until they say, we have now sent a passcode to your cell phone that is on record and do this. Two-step authentication. Two, yes. However, when you don't get that, there is still the old 800 number. And some, those 800 numbers are increasingly hard to find for different locations. But ultimately, if you're assertive and authoritative and you have just enough information, you can get, back, get in touch with a carbon-based life form who will, you can speak to and influence and get them to say, yeah, but this. And, and if you just have just enough of that information and someone like Director Brennan, you can probably piece together a decent profile of questions to answer. And you should assume that that 800 number person doesn't know that it's the John Brennan. Right. And so it's a, uh, it's a tough one. That's what I was wondering if the Verizon employee was going like, wait, John Brennan, really? Does, he, I mean, does somebody There's in a, a lot of John Brennan's. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Does somebody in a position like that, I mean, let's take Brennan out of it, but anyone who said this happened to them, um, what, does a person have legal recourse in a case like that? I mean, it seems to me that this is a place where ultimate responsibility really is. Like, you could do everything right, protect your data, freeze the credit report, all of that, but if somebody really decides to, you know, like, to be the nice guy at Verizon and help you reset your account, is there any kind of legal recourse for that? I suppose there's public shaming, but. 
Yeah, I mean on that. I mean it's probably be civil type recourse. You know, trying to go after them if they uh, lost your day then on a civil side. I don't know about criminally. Can't think of anything. Yeah. What but about I, you? Got to have intent if it's criminal. Yeah. yeah. Not just to cause mischief. Right? Yeah, on the civil or it could, side. Or, or it could neglect. be regulatory. Yeah. So, you know, the mm -hmm. FC, it could be a violation of something. PIA, where it goes into that, right. there may be right. an issue. Okay. Uh, we have some time now for questions from the audience. So uh, I would invite that now. Yes, please, ma'am, right here in the back. John Scalisi from Thomson Reuters. Um, obviously, there's a lot of attention to the prevalent cyber threat of um, actors that um, go into a network to exfiltrate data for whatever reason. But I was wondering if you could talk about maybe another dimension of the threat that could be more difficult to identify, and that is those who penetrate a net for the purposes of manipulating the data sitting on that network. Anyone like to take that? I think this is, this is kind of, it falls into the category of things that I know people in the national security community are very worried about occurring, right? Potential threats. Henry Paulson has talked about this publicly before. Um, well, I think what it would come down to is depending on what the network is and what the data is. So you could do it to give yourself a competitive advantage or, um, you know, then you could take it to another extreme is, is would this cause physical damage or would this cause some action to happen? And um, it, I guess it really depends on... So the tools and techniques are the same. It's just the motivation of the actor, generally. So the way you're getting in, you're, you're making a computer network do something it wasn't supposed to do. So you get you either get um, root access, it causes to reset to do something wrong, and then, and then changing the data. The question is, is what is that data used for? And then what do people rely on that data for? Mm -hmm. um, it would kind of lays out the problem. Yeah, I think you know if, if a hostile actor got into a development environment for a software company and that software did you know security controls a SCADA system and they embedded you know a particular you know uh, set of code in that there could be plenty of examples of that but I'll, I'll mention another one that uh, use of um, the cyber domain that I think is akin to this we're so focused on breaches and exfil but the use of sock puppets for uh, political influence is not insignificant. By sock puppet, it means sort of having teams of um, cyber pros posing as supporters of a political cause or, um, you know, as opposing a particular political issue, whether it's uh, the U.S. domestic election or what's happening uh, in Ukraine on either side of the equation. Kind of like industrial scale trolling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and so people oppose. And the next thing you know, you have someone fomenting discussion, right. and that person is representing a, a hacktivist group or a nation state and trying to influence an outcome there. It's a sort of wide open cyber based information operation. Right, putting out false information on Twitter accounts, yeah. making it look like news reports. We've seen Precisely. instances of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, other questions, please? from the audience. Yes, ma'am, right here. Thanks. Um, actually, it's a comment on your uh, point about social engineering. So it's interesting to hear about Verizon because about 10 years ago, I was at Sprint Nextel, and I don't know if you guys remember the whole scandal with um, actually Carly Fiorina and um, Wesley Clark. I remember all that? Yeah. So I was there at the time, and it did create a big change, I think, in the telecom industry because, you know, it was a wake-up call, you know. But it's interesting to hear that this is still happening now. And I think you're right that humans are humans. And, oh, and the other point I was going to make is that there is regulation on the civil side. 
right? So there, the CPNI regulations, which are basically telecom privacy regulations. So the FCC enforces those. And then there's also litigation. I know there were a number of cases that came out of that. that we were sued. <laughs> so. Which also brings up a question too. What is there? What is the risk for financial institutions, or you know, a target or a retailer that loses all this uh, massive data? Right, somebody's got to pay to replace all of the bank cards, right? So who pays for that? Well, that's changing. Uh, we're in the middle of the migration from uh, MagStripe data to chip and signature. Uh, with the migration of chip and signature, there's going to be a whole new shift in liability of who is responsible for the fraud in that transaction. Uh, if you're a private retailer and you have not adopted chip and signature technology by the, by the uh, deadline, there's a possibility you could be responsible for the fraud that's perpetrated off the data taken from your network. So there are some shifts in that happening already, but that's in just a card transaction. Okay. Yeah, and I think the, uh, uh, the, the chip, emergence of chips is, is, is so liberating, and I'd encourage you not to really take it seriously, but when was the last time you spent any time in your signature with a credit card, electronic one? Draw a smiley face, do a pirate symbol. It, it, it's not going to stop that transaction. It's very reassuring, those of you who have traveled to Europe recently, you know, they bring the chip reader over to your table. The, 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 um, you know, the server is not bringing your card back to an area where it's easily skimmed. You're inserting it into a portable machine. It, it's very, very logical and feels so much secure than, you know, pretending that you're doing something with your signature, which right. is totally meaningless at this right, point. Right, right, right. Although, as a liability perspective, the, the vendor can at least say, oh, I got the person to sign. Well, he signed it, the, right. Meaning the credit card companies say, did you compare it? And, you know, it just doesn't happen. They, they usually take the card and look at the last three digits, but that's about it. Right. Was there a question over here, or who else has one in the audience? Other questions? So Oreos aren't organic. No, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you they're not. But they're highly, highly prized. Yeah, they are. Let me, so yeah, go ahead. Hi, uh, Greg Smith, Navy Fellow at Johns Hopkins APL. I'm uh, interested in uh, continuity of operations uh, from the Department of Defense saying, hey, we got to be able to operate whether our, our systems are, are hacked or um, uh, we're getting erroneous information or anything. Um, what, what's, what does, how does a company view that? Um, it's more, not so much the law enforcement guys, but how, how do you look at that if you're so dependent on people coming to your website or that? What, what's the plan? Is there a um, trust verification backup, you know, isolated servers? Is there, does every company have a good plan for that? So that is something that I think uh, is very serious, at least in the organizations that I've uh, worked for, because obviously if you, uh, your operations go down, you're not providing a service, you're not making money. And so, um, so the IT space, uh, the professionals are, are very uh, attentive to those types of things in, in my experience. Uh, from my government experience, uh, obviously, that was in the forefront of everybody's mind, certainly at the Defense Department, uh, uh, the Bureau, obviously, uh, we had uh, good focus on that, but for a national security purpose. Uh, but, but clearly, the, the profit incentive and uh, making sure you don't lose trust with your, your customers uh, and your, um, your partners in business, that's a very serious thing. So the degree to which companies do that obviously depends on what they, they view their risk, uh, but I would say based on my experience, it was a pretty serious uh, focus. Okay. I think on that 
much is that I think the most important thing a company can do is have a plan and already thought it because if that intrusion happens that you go down, you have the denial of service attack, whatever the attack is, it's 3 a.m. on the weekend, you got to have something in place and people able to respond and know what you're going to do. You can't kind of figure out after the whole place is burned down to try and dig yourself out. Is there a last question in the audience? Yeah. All right, let me wrap this up with one quick, very brief response from each one of you. We, if you could wave a magic wand and fix one thing, whether it's in your organization or in this broader world of security that we're talking about, for Rich Weber, it would be give me 2,000 more investigators. <laughs> but very briefly, uh, what would it be if you could just you know, push the button and it's, uh, it's done, Trent? You know, the thing is, is that I'd like to see the confidence in the system, that, like the two-factor authentication, the chip, so that you know, 90% of your transactions are, are secure, so you only focus on that. Really have to pay attention to that 10%. Right now, the, it's a much, much lower rate of trust on you know, card skimming or passwords, all the stuff we talked about today. I'd like to see it at that 90% level, so then, then we're only focused on 10% okay. is what I'd like. Yeah, I'd say uh, better training, education, awareness, both to attract new people into the industry and allow us to have the best and brightest talent working on the defensive side. Okay. So I think my thinking on this uh, is in sitting in a boardroom is really that kind of understanding of right that the right technical balance, the right um, uh, kind of people balance, and an understanding of accountability. Okay. I'd like to see a real shift to adoption of true security uh, measures by individuals in our citizenry. Get away from what's just convenient to what mm -hmm. is actually secure for you. Okay, great. All right, with that, let me thank the panel for this great discussion and all of you for your questions and your attention. Thanks a lot. Okay.